It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Today's show digs into the pursuit of how to live a moral life. Can we discover our best selves through serious self-examination and scrutiny? Can we trust our emotional instincts to determine what's right and wrong? What can we learn from history and great philosophers about how to live virtuously? Our featured speakers include two writers who have chronicled the lives of extreme do-gooders, a moral philosopher and a teacher of political philosophy who says her own life has taught her. Philosophical theories and the kind of formulas they purport to give you for how to be a good person offer some wisdom, but they don't offer everything. Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events held by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Ideas about living a moral life are found in all cultures. At one time, people widely thought education could instill personal value and shape character. Religion taught that moral behavior comes from God or some other deity. More contemporary philosophy holds high democratic ideals like liberty, equality, respect, and dignity for all. With this mindset, people are free to define for themselves what a moral life is. In our own pursuit of living morally, can we take cues from people who have devoted themselves to helping others? Larissa McFarcar profiles them in her book, Strangers Drowning. Here's one takeaway. Of course, we're all selfish and lazy and, you know, we love our stuff and all that's true. But I don't think it's just that. I think that there's actually a genuine uncertainty in many of us about uh, the best life to live. So what should we do? McFarquhar sits down with author David Brooks and Columbia political philosophy professor Michelle Moody Adams, who you heard at the top of the show. Rob Reich, who directs the Center for Ethics and Society at Stanford, moderates the conversation. Here's Rob Reich. David, let's start with you. It's a big question, how to live a moral life. You have an answer? Yes. I wrote this book uh, called The Road to Character, and I learned in the course of writing the book that writing a book on character doesn't actually give you good character. Um, and even reading a book on character doesn't give you good character, but buying a book on character <laughs> does give you good character. So, uh, yeah. And so just briefly, the, the, the thesis of that book was basically that I, I wrote the book about 10 people who at 20 were pathetic, <laughs> and by 70 were kind of amazing. And I just want to know how they did it. And the essential formula was identifying their core sin and then waging a lifetime struggle against it. Uh, and so one of the characters was Dorothy Day, and her core sin was she was just fragmented. Uh, she was emotionally, you know, the psychologists say there are two kind of patients, those who need tightening and those who need loosening. Uh, she needed tightening. Uh, and then she had, gave birth to a daughter, uh, and that gave her a focus to her life. A friend of mine said that when her daughter was born, sh she found that she loved her daughter more than evolution required. <laughs> and like our friend, Dorothy Day found God, became a, a, wrote a, found a newspaper called The Catholic Worker, and then spent the rest of her life living with the poor and struggling against her emotional up and downness. Dwight Eisenhower, his, his problem was a terrible temper. And he realized he could not lead and, and succeed in life if he was just this passionate hate-filled. And so every day he struggled against that. And he, he would take, he would, at night he would write at night the names of the people he hated on pieces of paper and rip them up just to purge anger. 
And so that was the, the and humility being the core virtue, because humility is radical self-awareness, the ability to see oneself from a position of other-centeredness. And so that's the book. And, uh, but as after the book came out, I, I began to think two things about my characters. The first was that they all had amazing moms. Their dads were eh, but their moms were. Uh, and I came across a study that um, they, all these guys were drafted into World War II, and some rose to colonel and some stayed private. And so I wanted to know, and they did a study, why did some rise and some fail? Was it because they were smarter? No correlation. Was it because they were richer? No correlation. Physical courage? No correlation. Number one correlation to success in World War II? Relationship with mother. And the guys who rose had received a flood of love and joy from their mom, and they knew how to give it to their men. They had a model for love. The other thing my characters had was a capacity for making amazing commitments over a long period of time. Dorothy Day to the poor and to her God, Dwight Eisenhower to the military, and they could keep those commitments. And so I came to see that my book was too individualistic, and that the moral life is not only defeating sin in yourself, but the ability to make commitments. And my next book is maybe going to be called The Four Commitments, and the idea is that we each, most of us, make four big commitments in our lives to a spouse and family, to a community, to a vocation, and to a philosophy of faith. And the fulfillment of our lives depends on how well we choose those things and how well we execute on the commitments. And I do think there's a piece of us that doesn't care about money and that doesn't care about popularity uh, and doesn't care about fame. It just wants meaning. It wants that sense of purpose, and it hungers for that. And when you're in your 20s, that piece of us is sort of off in the woods. You don't really see it sometimes because you're building your career. But then it comes in the middle of the night. It can come at a moment of great joy and ecstasy. But at some point in your life, it just comes center stage and sits in front of you and says, what were you here for? What's your purpose? What are you called to do? And how you did on those commitments is really the answer you give. And if you haven't thought about those questions, there's a hunger in your soul. And then the final thing I've just started thinking about is this theory I'm developing of that we all climb two mountains in our lives. There's the mountains often when we're in our 20s and 30s, which is forming our identity, establishing our place in the world, but then either you fulfill it and you find it unfulfilling, or you fail at it, or something happens in your life that knocks you off your mountain, like the death of a child or something. And then you realize that first mountain wasn't actually my mountain, and then you find a second mountain. And that's where you really realize that's not just about your identity, and it's not about acquiring, it's about pouring out yourself into. And that a lot of us, especially in this room, we're sort of on our second mountain. And it's about staying faithful to those commitments and living them out in a way that is pouring out and giving and loving. Michelle. David, that was a lovely opening, and it's a hard act to follow in some ways. I want to thank you for the shout-out to moms. <laughs> we'll take that. And I also want to say I think you're right that it is about, slightly about growing older and having certain kinds of experiences that allow you to understand what morality is really about. I've been teaching for 33 years, and I think I've imparted a lot of wisdom. I hope to my students it isn't my wisdom, it's other people's. But the one thing I've come to realize, partly as a consequence of something that amounted to a kind of professional upheaval in my life, was that philosophical theories and the kind of formulas they purport to give you for how to be a good person 
offer some wisdom, but they don't offer everything. And when you need to figure out how to be resilient, for instance, and you need to figure out how to pick up and move on and, you know, take off, even if it isn't a failure, it's something might turn out the way you didn't expect, you need to find people in the world who have led good lives, who embody values and principles and, and uh, ways of looking at the world that matter. And I, I want to talk about four such kinds of people. One kind that, in fact, will echo and harken back to your point about humility. Um, but I think humility is a really critical, critical virtue. Some of the people I think of in contemporary life who embody it, people like Paul Farmer, the global health scholar and, and the, the physician who works on things like AIDS and um, helping people in, in underdeveloped countries um, develop their healthcare systems. He's somebody who really understands that you will find truth in cultures that may be not like yours at all, and that even if your culture can be counted on to have a part of the truth, you need to be open to the possibility that some way of life you're not familiar with will also have a part of the truth as well. And I think that's one of the really important aspects of treating humility as a critical, a critical virtue. For me, it's also important, and I think you've actually borne this out in your practice here, to have a capacity for a kind of self-mocking humor. Um, and it's interesting that Paul Farmer is one of those people who has such a capacity. There's a wonderful interview that he did uh, with the old Stephen Colbert on the Colbert Report. There's one of the funniest interviews that, that about leading a moral life that I've ever seen. And here's somebody who is very serious and very earnest in his daily practice, but who knows how to make fun of himself and to let other people make fun of him. And I just think if you can learn the right kind of self-mockery, um, that means you're not taking yourself too earnestly. One of the things you're better able to do that I think is critical to being a moral person than others is you learn the difference between being right and being self-righteous. And to me, that capacity to make fun of yourself is so critical uh, to that. The third value, the third kind of character trait I've come to value is actually one that gives birth to philosophy in the first place, and that's the capacity for kind of critical self-reflection and self-scrutiny on the way you lead your lives. Um, and I think this is so important because it turns out that even if you could feel confident that you've been uh, lucky enough to have a moral education, maybe a wonderful family, a wonderful mom, maybe a wonderful dad, um, and you, you've got a good set of values, one of the things you will discover is that the world will present you as you grow older with circumstances that don't look like anything else you've ever experienced. And if you haven't learned how to be critical and reflective on the values you get when you're young, you, I think, are unable to adapt to the world in a way that makes you able to make constructive moral choices. I also think another uh, value of self-scrutiny and, and uh, being sort of critically reflective is that sometimes we need to think that the traditions we are a part of um, need to be repaired sometimes. We need to have some distance from them. And it's not possible to be uh, able to take the right kind of distance unless you've learned how to be critical. The um, philosopher Alistair McIntyre has, has said that, you know, tradition's a wonderful thing, but a tradition that never allows any kind of internal argument is a dead tradition. So even if you're somebody who's very conservative and, you know, thinks that people are too uh, likely to dismiss 
tradition. If you want your traditions to survive, you need to encourage people to develop the right kind of self-critical capacity. And then finally, being self-critical uh, and, and self-scrutinizing of the, the traditions you've come with. Occasionally, when your tradition goes wrong, and we know they all do, we know there are moments in history, we could talk about Nazi Germany, we could talk about American slavery, we could, there are many examples you need to be able sometimes to step away from the tradition and say, you know what, what that tradition has taught me is wrong. And people who aren't able to, in some sense, be alienated from their upbringing in that way, I think can't be good people. But finally, the capacity to have hope and to hold on to it. And I want to say not just any old kind of hope, but what Martin Luther King called infinite hope, what the... Um, a psychiatrist and political thinker Jonathan Lear called radical hope, the kind of hope that you hold on to even when the world doesn't seem to give you a clear reason to hold on to it. The hope that maybe all the good in the world hasn't been extinguished and there's a reason for you to go on, that's the kind of hope that allows us, I think maybe in the current moment in particular, to hold on to the possibility that things can get better and that we can make a difference uh, in, in bringing that about. So the philosopher in me acknowledges that moral philosophy doesn't solve every problem. Um, and I believe that because of the formulas we teach our students are sufficient, but they're not everything, um, we need to be open to the, to the value of these moral exemplars that we can find in our practice. Thank you, Michelle. Larissa. Um, so uh, one of the, the questions I started with uh, writing this book was uh, why most of us are not, do, do not live better lives, do not act more morally. Um, and I find this actually a genuine puzzle, as, and I, I, by the way, I mean this about me uh, as more than anyone, um, because we all know that doing something good for somebody else, giving something away, makes you feel good. So even if you believe, which I don't, um, that humans are innately selfish, it still is puzzling that we don't do more for others, that we don't give more away. And so um, the way I tried to get at this question was I went uh, to talk to uh, people who lived extraordinarily moral lives, whose, whose sense of moral commitment was, was very extreme. And I want to just give you one example to show you the kind of extremity I'm talking about. Um, this is a man who uh, died a few years ago. His name is Baba Amte, and he um, founded a leprosy colony in the middle of India near the city of Nagpur, uh, which is still going. I visited it a few. He founded it, I think, 60 years ago. It's, it's now a flourishing community of several thousand people. People uh, stay there their whole lives, bring up children there. It's really an amazing place. But when he started, he was given a tract of land in the wilderness, and he moved out there with his wife and his two toddlers, um, babies one and two, um, age one and two. And uh, there were panthers around, and they were living and working with several leprosy patients. And, um, you know, he, as it happened, these two children um, did not get carried off and eaten by the panthers, as did the four dogs they brought with them to protect them, uh, but they might have done. And they didn't catch leprosy, but they might have done. And this is the risk he took. And so this is a conflict between what we owe to family and the people we love the most and to strangers, to um, people we're not related to. And this was a big conflict, the deepest conflict for everyone I spoke to. It took different forms, but it really came down to this. And um, 
I think in this I found one answer to my question, which was that I think it's not just that we find it when, of course, we're all selfish and lazy and, you know, we love our stuff and all that stuff and all that's true. But I don't think it's just that. I think that there's actually a genuine uncertainty in many of us about uh, the best life to live and what we should do. Um, should we put our children at risk in order to serve strangers or not? Which is the better uh, path? We don't know. And um, just a little historical note, I, I think that, you know, we've, these, the question of where you draw the line, how much you owe to family, how much you owe to strangers, is very different in different times and different places. And I think that one of the reasons that we are much more inclined to favor family here and now is, and this is one of the many reasons, but I think it has something to do uh, with the draft. Um, because it's been a very long time in this country since we've had the draft for a war uh, that most people agreed was just and necessary, which is to say World War II. Um, and so because of that, there's almost no one left alive in this country who has had the experience of it being completely ordinary and expected of everyone to sacrifice a father, a son, a brother for a larger cause. And so I think in the, since we have not had that experience of it being normal, um, I think the, the sense of duty to family has expanded to take, its, to take the place of that more public duty that was so ordinary a couple of generations ago. And that's just one of the many reasons why now um, sacrificing family for strangers can feel to us unnatural and extreme. And I certainly found when, I, when I've talked to friends and, and other, uh, other people I've met about these extremely committed moral people whom I admire wholeheartedly, I really very often encounter um, anything from skepticism, something like half the people I talked to was like, oh, those people, they're all, they're all mentally ill, right? And I was like, no, they're not mentally ill, but how interesting you should say that, to outright hostility. You know, these, these people are self-righteous, um, they are, they're these missionary types, they, they all they can do, they're kind of Mrs. Jellabees from Bleak House, you know, all they can do is see the, the poor strangers far away and they don't care about people close to them. There are a lot of um, skepticisms and hostilities directed at such people and I think um, one of the things I tried to do was to figure out why and why it is that the rest of us don't do more than we do. Thanks for listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. In the latest episode of the podcast, Aspen Insight, journalist and Aspen Institute colleague Garrett Graff talks about Russian meddling in the 2016 U.S. presidential election. Graff wrote a book about the man leading the investigation, special counsel Robert Mueller. I think what you are seeing play out right now is that Mueller has a very straightforward moral compass. He sees things as black or white, right or wrong, true or false. Hear more from Graf, who runs the Institute's Cybersecurity and Technology Program, by searching Aspen Insight in your favorite podcast player. There's also a link in our show notes. Back to today's show. Here's Rob Reich. 
no good symposium proceeds without some disagreement in order to illuminate various lines of argument. And so one of the things I'm curious to ask any of you on the panel is to take some of the moral exemplars you described, Michelle or Larissa, some of the people in, in your book who are living lives of extreme moral commitment. So let's introduce the phrase, the idea of a moral saint or a moral exemplar, people whom we, we see before us as potential examples um, and uh, who are so devoted to living out lives um, full of moral commitment that, as you just described, Larissa, many people have an ambivalent reaction to them. They, they seem actually worrisome and possibly perverse. Uh, so that leads to the question, if we've got a bunch of answers up and running about how to lead a moral life, should we seek to maximize how moral our life is? Are, is, a, is a good moral life the one that's the most moral? No, that's joyless. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think, I think I'm, I slightly disagree on why we don't live that way. And I, 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 it's a fascinating thought that we, we've prioritized our, our close at hand versus the larger purpose. Though I'm rebelling because there's a kid in my head, his last name was Trigg, and there was a Washington Post piece about him, and he decided, I'm really smart, I'm really good at finance, I just read that you can save a life in Africa from malaria for 2,000 bucks. So I'm gonna start a hedge fund, I'm gonna work in New York, and I'll give 80% away. And I disagree with his life choice. I understand the utility of it, but I think it confuses, I, I, A, I, don't, I think you get changed by your surroundings. And if you go in with the finest, and there's nothing wrong with finance, obviously, I would love a loan from any of you. But, uh, but if you go in without the true love, then I think you do distort a piece of yourself. And you do become a person who loves the far away, cl the closer than hand. And I do think there's a piece of yourself, and we could call it the soul or whatever you want to call it, that each decision you make in life is turning that core piece of yourself into something either more holy or less holy. And those are the intimate emotional decisions you make every day, not the big rational decisions. So, and then the, the other thought I had as you were speaking was that I find with my students, uh, I sometimes feel society has been a conspiracy designed to rob them of the sort of moral joy that some people get to experience. They're so busy, they're utilitarian, and they can only think about jumping through the next hoop. They've been given no... Um, emotional exemplar, moral exemplars. They haven't been given a moral vocabulary, so they're stuck in this utilitarian language, this economic language about their lives. Uh, they, uh, they, have, they go out into the world with what I have come to call the telos crisis. They don't have an overall purpose, and so the first thing that knocks them off destroys them. There's a Nietzschean phrase that he who has a why to live for can endure anyhow, but a lot of them don't have a why. And uh, and I really shouldn't do this in f sitting next to a moral philosopher, but the way I've come to think of this conspiracy of society against the sort of moral commitments that you, know, you wrote about and you're talking about is that our society has made three really bad philosophical bets. We bet on Hobbes when we should have bet on Durkheim, <laughs> which is to say we bet on individualism when we should have bet on relationship. We bet on Bentham, when we should have bet on Frankel. We took the idea that life is about pleasure and pain, whereas Frankel said, no, it's really about purpose. And then we bet on Descartes when we should have bet 
on Augustine. And Descartes thought we were cognitive creatures who were mostly thinking creatures, and Augustine knew we were primarily longing creatures and desiring creatures. And this has made us all, I think all of us, into a little more too individualistic, a little too rationalistic, and a little too cognitive. I knew I wasn't going to... Rejoined her. <laughs> so one of the things I want to say, there are even utilitarians, so promote the greatest happiness of the greatest number, who will say to you, maybe this echoes something you said, that too long a sacrifice makes a stone of the heart, and you, maybe this echoes some... And in fact, the best utilitarians, even John Stuart Mill, understood there were other values in life besides promoting the greatest happiness of the greatest number. Bentham was flawed, but the best utilitarians understood that, and Mill was one of those utilitarians. I would also say, I would resist your characterization of our current students. So I've taught for 33 years. I've taught at five different institutions from the Midwest to the East, um, and I've been a student at several others. And I, most of the students I meet, in fact, do not lead these lives where all they care about is individual. I'm not saying they don't care about material well-being and success, but Paul Farmer, frankly, is one of the biggest heroes amongst my students. Dorothy Day, I'm talking about a class I taught in, in spring of 2017 when I mentioned Dorothy Day and I mentioned her comment, in fact, that she didn't want to be called a saint because she didn't want to be so easily dismissed. I love that line. That what you, what you have to accept is that don't let the characterizations that people give you of students take the place of listening to them when they talk to you. And the students I talk to are, in fact, much more idealistic. They become less so over time. But when they're 18, 19, 20, I think most of them, in fact, even if it's not my values, most of them want to, to care about something else and to be moved by something outside of themselves. And so in fairness to them, I'm just 33 years of experience. I, the ones I see, they get more jaded and they get more individualistic over time, they don't start that way. I, we fail them when, when they get out. They don't, they, you know, they're telling us something that we're not listening to. I even want to push back on something which is uh, a much harder sell, which is defending utilitarians. Um, everyone hates them, and, and I've, I've come to realize that, um, that, that people, uh, there, there's a couple of, of really staunch utilitarians. Um, if, if you're familiar with the work of Peter Singer, they're basically Peter Singer. Uh, and um, and I, I I loved them. I thought I, I admired them terrifically. But but I found talking about them that 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 there's something about rationality as such, and especially rationality and calculate, calculation as applied to um, charity or giving or um, that people despise. It really uh, People turn, it turns them off. They feel that it should be properly the realm of, of the heart, of spontaneity. Um, and I want to say two things in their defense. First of all, um, there are some utilitarians that who have talked about, um, I, I agree that most people, uh, their, their sort of moral fires are kindled by, by love of, of people close to them, but there are exceptions, and I've met a couple of them. Um, two philosophers, not a coincidence, we were talking about suffering in the abstract. Um, no examples, nothing. Suffering as such, as a concept. And both of them, in the course of this, this discussion, started to weep. And it was the thought of suffering that moved them so extremely that they were crying in an interview with a journalist, which is not, I just tell you, it doesn't happen to me usually. 
Um, and so I found that very moving. And I think there are some people who are differently emotionally constructed, and it may be that that leads them to hold different moral views, which favor um, more abstract um, moral calculus. But also, I would even want to defend um, Trigg, who I didn't read this article, but I've met other people who've made similar choices. And Again, I understand what's unappealing about someone who's, who, who says, I will just give away money. Uh, it's less obviously appealing than someone who says, I will go and work in a shelter, I will commit myself to political organizing, or any of the more traditional forms of altruistic life. But to me, I guess what's appealing to, about someone like him and utilitarianism in general is that it's a deeply humble way of being an altruist. Um, because the two people I'm thinking of who I wrote about um, in particular, they thought, that the woman, uh, I'll take as an example, um, she, her first thought in college, she wanted to dedicate her life to doing, to helping others, and her first thought was a conventional thought. She thought, I should become a foreign aid worker. Um, and then she thought, you know, I'm just some random American undergraduate. I don't know anything about, I mean, I could learn, of course, but I have no reason to suppose that I'd be a really especially good foreign aid worker, and I, I have these sort of, you know, political doubts about the, you know, random Americans going off into other countries and telling them what to do and trying to solve their problems. And so she said, I will do something that is less glamorous and um, less moving and that will be hard for people to understand, but to her um, made more sense, which is she said, I'll stay here and take my college education and earn a first world salary and give that money to uh, groups that are in countries that are, I perceive are in need. She did a great deal of research and they will know better than I do what to do with that money. And I found that very, very moving. Now, mind you, this person, not just to give you an example of how committed she is, and this was not just a, a, a way out, um, she, one of the deepest uh, crises she faced as a young woman, I, I was talking to her when she was 23, 24, um, she had always wanted to be a social worker, but of course social workers don't earn very much money, and she thought, do I have the right to be a social worker rather than found a hedge fund, um, which she could, I mean, well, not a hedge fund, but she could have become a corporate lawyer, say, that she would have been suited to, and she would have earned far more money and given far more away. And she thought, is it any different for me to decide for my own happiness to become a social worker and not donate that extra money to help people? Um, would it be any different to become, let's say, a corporate lawyer and take all that money and spend it on clothes or, you know, travel or something else? Um, to her, because she's a utilitarian, it seemed very much the same. But I just say that she did become a social worker, just so you know, but I just say that to illustrate how deeply committed this person is and how it's really not about um, issuing uh, or pushing away the hardness of a moral life, but making what to me seems like an admirably humble decision to do as much good as she can. I also want to just add really quickly, I mean, this is part of why I feel confident I can teach a class where students read lots of different theories that give them different rules or principles for how to lead a moral life. Morality is so complicated. The moral domain is so complex. My question, I mean, I think this is the kind of, you know, humility that, that comes out in the way you think about theory. Why assume that there might not be lots of different ways of life that give you a portion of the moral truth? This is maybe even John Stuart Mill telling us about why we need to listen to people who disagree with us. I think morality is so complicated. I don't know that even if I led my best life that I would ever capture all the richness that a genuinely 
moral perspective on the world requires. And so let's let the guy with a hedge fund who wants to give money do that. And then somebody else will lead a life where they have a more personal commitment. And if you put it all together in the end, what we need to do as a species to be moral might actually be accomplished overall. You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. On the show today, Living a Moral Life. Our featured speakers are David Brooks, who wrote the book, Road to Character, Michelle Moody Adams, the former Dean of Columbia College, and Larissa McFarcar, a staff writer at The New Yorker. Rob Reich is moderating the conversation. He's a professor of political science and philosophy at Stanford. Back to the conversation. Here's David Brooks. I spoke poorly when I spoke about the students. Um, <laughs> We're giving you a hard time. I, um, Somebody has to get a hard and, time. And I do, th- I do think they um, are idealistic. And they love Paul Farmer, and they all want to be Bono. And you know, my uh, standard joke is I ask my students, um, you know, what are you doing at spring break? It's, you know, I'm unicycling across Thailand while reading to lepers. You know, they're, they're serving. Uh, but I think they've been shortchanged in two respects. One of which I think you're solving. They, they want this idealism, but they haven't been given the moral ecologies in order to find out how you structure a moral view of the world. And I went to the University of Chicago, and I, w- I was taught by these guys who escaped from World War II, and they believed the golden keys to life were in Kant and Hobbes, and they, they formed me. And that totally worked for me. And what it gave me was a desire for wisdom, even though at 22 I didn't have it or now, but the desire that it's out there. And also that we tell a lot of our students, you know, come up with your own worldview, your own moral worldview. Well, if your name is Nietzsche, maybe you can do that. But the rest of us need to borrow somebody else's. And so we could introduce them to the, the Greek moral worldview built around honor and courage, or the Christian based on sacrifice and grace, or a Hebraic worldview based on justice and obedience to law, or you know, the rationalist one, the utilitarian one, and say, we're not, we're not gonna tell you which one it is, but pick one. Mm-hmm. And then the second way I think we've shortchanged them, and maybe the culture as a whole has shortchanged them. To me, the question of moral life is not knowing what to do. We all know that being Paul Farmer is a great way to live, <laughs> or being Albert Schweitzer who's sort of like a lot of the people you wrote about. The problem is the problem of motivation. So how are you motivated to do that? And the knowing is not being motivated to do it. The only way you're motivated is through loving and through the sort of loving service. And so I'm a big believer in, well, since you're here, I'm gonna butcher another philosopher, uh, the Plato's Ladder of the Beauties. Yeah. He said, when you teach people, you teach a beautiful face. Mm-hmm. And then you become aware of an even higher beauty, which is a beautiful idea. And then you become aware of a higher beauty, which is a, a beautiful society. And a higher beauty, which is the transcendent beauty from which nothing can be added and nothing can be taken. Yeah. And you, you climb this ladder of things you fall in love with. And then you get this expansive feeling where service feels like selfishness. And to me, that getting them to fall in love and to, is, and to be that emotionally vulnerable is something that they're hard to 
it's hard for them because they live in such a comparison society. Yeah. And it's hard for them to be the vulnerable that is the prerequisite for intimacy. So, you know, there has to be room in the world for people who don't have these strong feelings of love. And there has to be a kind of openness to moral achievement and accomplishment to people who may not have that same stock of emotions. That's where Kant, who talks about respect for persons, comes from. I'm not saying, again, because I don't believe any one theory gives you the whole of morality, but there is a place in the world for people who don't feel these strong sentiments of love. And I, you know, I love Plato too, but Kant is telling us that you need to say the person who may not have a lot of sympathy and love for humanity, it's open to them to be good people. And we need to hold out the possibility of a way of looking at the world that doesn't require that everybody has. To, I, I mean, I hope I know the people who have that love, but there are some who don't. And I think we need a way of thinking about morality that makes it possible that, for them to see how to be good people too. I also think we don't all need to be, to be theorists. I think some of the best people I've ever known are people who've never studied a lick of philosophy. And frankly, some of the worst people I've ever met are truly, truly are philosophers of great accomplishment. I will just tell you that. So that's my one bit of resistance to the idea that it all comes Be out of Being a moral philosophy. philosopher is no route to being it moral. It doesn't give you moral expertise. <laughs> They've done studies on this. Oh? And moral philosophers do not come out on top. Pretty much everyone's equal, except for economists who are down here. But, uh, <laughs> no, I've certainly, we've all found in our lives, you can go to the an NGO where somebody's you know, doing something amazing and there's, it's a world with a lot of amazing people and a lot of complete schmucks. And then you go to a world where we think of as less moral and there are a lot of amazing people in that world and a lot of complete schmucks. I think I, I, I completely agree with Michelle that, that, that love is too high a bar. I mean, that's, that, can't, that can't be necessary. And I feel like, I mean, one of the things that distinguished the people that I met was not that they, some of them felt love, some of them seemed very compassionate, some of them were quite, quite cold and, and, and rationalistic, but what united them was uh, that their sense of what they were obliged to do was in a different place from most of us. So, you know, if sometimes they were at, they would be asked by people, oh, do you, do you feel um, like so saintly for doing what they, what you're doing, and they, none of them did because they felt like it was simply their obligation. So um, the woman I was just talking about, when she gives away, you know, 50, 75 percent of her money to charity, she feels that it's not really her money, that that's obliged, and so she doesn't feel a sort of warm, fuzzy feeling about that any more than you or I would feel a warm, fuzzy feeling if we went into a store and we left without stealing a single thing, you know? <laughs> we just wouldn't feel good about that. That's how she feels, and I think the drawing of that line between um, obligation and optional extra, you know, extra credit charity uh, or extra credit goodness um, is something that we do as a culture together. And I feel that we can probably all agree that that line has shifted and in probably the wrong direction. Well, so I want to just mention a couple themes or issues that we've got up and running now. I mean, one of the things that you started us with, Larissa, is the idea or the question about whether a moral life involves um, an equal commitment to strangers as to family. And you were talking about these four different stages or pillars, you know, mountains we have to climb, starting with choosing a, a partner and family and community. Um, so we've got a tension between whether a moral life can be led without extending as far as possible the circle of people we care about. And when you talk about love, for instance, I, I'm curious, and use the language of passion, you're, you're resistant to the cold duty 
that reason imposes on us. You want the emotional life to be fully engaged there too. If all of the things we know about how humans are wired emotionally, which tend to make us partial to those who are near and dear to us, how do you think, David, about this aspect, which I think is familiar to many people too, that a moral life involves extending our circle of concern beyond those people we know, perhaps even to that grand abstraction of humanity as such? Yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily uh, require that of people. I, I think we know people who grew up in a town, lived in the town, and are faithful to their promises. And to me, there are so many promises entailed in our day-to-day -day life. When we go to a dinner party, we're sort of promising uh, that we'll behave civilly to the other people around the table. When we come here, we're more or less promising we're going to try to do our best to say something that'll be enlightening. That's a promise. You're, you promise to be active in, all, in this whole festival, active in feeding each other. And being faithful to those promises, uh, okay, I'm going to tell a story. <laughs> so I have a friend named Rod, uh, and he lives in northern Louisiana. Uh, I think I may have told this story already a couple in years past. Uh, and so he had a sister named Ruthie. Uh, and Ruthie was a teacher, and she's one of these people who, to me, the marker of a, a really moral person is they just glow with an internal light. They just have this incandescence. Uh, and they're patient, they make you feel warmer and funnier and smarter around them. And so Ruthie was one of these people. And she taught school and uh, she had this glow. And unfortunately she died at age about 42 or so. And there were 800 people in this town in northern Louisiana, but 1,600 people showed up at the funeral because so many had been touched by our lives. And one of the things Ruthie used to do was on Christmas Eve, she wanted the, the town to remember the dead in their community. So she would go to a, the town cemetery and place a lit candle on every gravestone. And she died just before Christmas Eve and Rod went back to his mom and they were at Christmas Eve in their home. And Rod asked his mom, do you wanna do what Ruthie did and go to the cemetery and put candles? And his mom said, you know, other years I'd do it, but this has just happened, it's just too tough, I'm not gonna do it this year. And so they said, fine, I understand, you're not gonna do it. And, but instead they drove across town to visit another relative. And they happened to drive by the cemetery and somebody had put a lit candle on every gravestone. And to me that is local, but it's the way a community creates norms of morality and virtue that are unconsciously picked up by people around and the way these things are sort of contagious. And so I wouldn't ask Ruthie to go beyond that community which she served so beautifully. And so I, I wouldn't demand ever expanding circles of care on somebody like Ruthie. Okay, so one of the other themes that came up was the question about how either students in schools or um, college-age students are, you know, are or are not being prepared for the kinds of moral lives that we've been talking about. Um, you initially expressed some concern or skepticism, the organization kid, the idea of the hoop jumper who's um, decent and kind but doesn't know the end to which they're striving. Um, Michelle, you were more, I think, optimistic about at least the current generation of, of college students. So an open question then to, to focus on the, um, how it is that leading a moral life and learning how to live a moral life interacts with education and education in the broadest sense possible. How should 
Michelle and I, and David sounds like you've also taught at universities on occasion, maybe still do, um, the college curriculum, in my experience, is uh, allergic to the idea of using virtue as one of its goals. Or if you ask a faculty member, are you trying to make your students into moral individuals, the vast majority of them would say, that's not my place at all. So how do you think about a curriculum or the role of education outside of the classroom, perhaps, in leading a moral life? So I was actually going to say that not every important aspect of an education that you provide students goes on in the classroom. I mean, sometimes it's how they see you lead your life. Maybe it has a public component and they see that. But sometimes it's how you treat them in your office hours, for instance, or how you, they see you interact with your colleagues or with other students, or what you say to them when something terrible happens on your campus or in the world, how you sit with them, talk with them, help them think through the challenges they feel. I felt that sometimes the best moral instruction, in, in quotes, scare quotes, that I've given students is when I haven't been really trying to instruct them at all but trying to show them how you respond to challenges in life. I mean, I think for me, that's where some of the most important lessons come. So, you know, be, becoming a parent, you talk about the mom thing. My world changed, and I even talked to my students about how I, my feminism, yes, I am a feminist, became so much deeper and richer when I understood why some feminists talk about care. And I will tell students, sometimes in a conversation outside a classroom, occasionally as an example, when I'm talking about a theory, that you know things deepen and get richer when you're not just thinking about how they, um, how they are relevant to the theoretical domain of what you're doing. The best education I've ever given my students, I think, comes outside the classroom or outside the narrow confines of the curriculum. I don't know what other people I should think. say we, we have, I teach at Yale, Stanford, Columbia, so we've got the American educational system from A to B. We've got like, <laughs> we're not quite representative. Um, I, I agree with you. Uh, I have my office hours at a bar between 9.30 and 1 in the morning. How and, old are your students? <laughs> they're all over 21. <laughs> at least they say they are. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> and I, that, and I, it is that, you know, uh, I was talking, I wrote a column years ago uh, about trying to teach students to be moral in a classroom, and I got an email from this guy named Dave Jolly. I quote it all the time, and he said, never forget what a wise person says is the least of that which they give. What gets communicated is the smallest, is the totality of being represented in their smallest gestures. Never forget the message is the person. Mm. And so it's the way you are, not what you say. And I, I teach this class in moral philosophy at, at Yale, and one time about three years ago, uh, I couldn't make my office hours uh, because the woman somewhere out there who is now my wife was coming up to talk to me about a relationship-defining conversation. Uh, and, <laughs> and, uh, and so I said, there's something going on in my personal life. Uh, I just can't make it tonight. And that's all I said, something going on in my personal life. And I got about 15 emails that night, just wanting to know I'm thinking about you, I'm praying for you. Uh, and it changed the course for the rest of the term. And it made me think about leading any organization, showing vulnerability, and changing the course and making it just more promotional. Mm. I do think, and my course is literally on how to not be an organization kid. It's for high-achieving Yale kids and how to leave a deeper life. And we talk about how to discern a calling from a career. We talk about marriage and how to choose a marriage partner. 
a subject they are not interested in. That's one, <laughs> one of my students said, I think marriage is something that'll come in the mail in like 15 years. It's like, no, you really should think about it beforehand. Uh, and so we, we go, and we hold up a lot of moral exemplars, and we just get them talking about, and a lot of what we're doing is just moral uplift. Because just giving people the sense, and we have all felt this, when you feel moral elevation, you just want to copy it, you want to celebrate when you see somebody. I'm, I, you must have had this experience writing the book, seeing these people. You just want to dance and hug people. Yeah, I do all the time. Um, just, just to give a counterexample to these two who are obviously deeply caring teachers, um, I read about, and to illustrate your point about philosophers, I read about a philosopher who, um, from another country who visited this one, discovered that American professors were expected to hold office hours and was so horrified by this that he, you're, you're supposed to put a sign-up sheet outside your door and he filled in all the spots with fake names um, so, that, <laughs> so that no one would ever visit him, so uh, as a counterexample. Can I add a point to that? So maybe unlike you, I've taught at a lot of different kinds of places. I taught at a Big Ten school in the Midwest in a place in uh, Bloomington, Indiana, where there were people whose religious convictions were very different from mine. Bloomington, a shout out. And I can tell you that just sitting down with students who give you an example, one, two, well, two. One student didn't understand why it made sense in a class about moral reflection to read Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail. My parents say he's a communist. Why should I read that? A second student didn't understand why this one really horrified me. Why if I taught about um, families, the former Huguenots in southern France who helped to save Nazi children from murder during the, during the war, why I wouldn't quote-unquote teach the other side, quote-unquote. So when you have to sit down with students who say things like this, and you have to figure out, so their students have got to be as respectful as possible, I have to make them not want to be disengaged from the intellectual environment, that you, there's a kind of education that goes on, and it's different in different cases. I will tell you two very quick things. I said to the one student, the really disturbing case, I said, you know, we're going to read the, about these families who saved these children. This is not a required course. And so if you're not comfortable with not hearing about the evil that they were fighting as somehow not evil, you're in the wrong place. When it's a required course, then my, my, my responsibility as a moral person, I think, or a person trying to help them be moral, is to help them understand why even though there might be reasons to object, there's something we can learn about the capacity for self-scrutiny, when somebody's protesting something is wrong and unjust. I had never in my life, I had lived this very, you know, sort of a rarefied life, encountered someone who said to me, I can't read Martin Luther King, and I had to figure out how to engage the student. And that, for me, was a kind of moral instruction of the student, but it also taught me something about how to engage morally with people generally. Um, that I, I think you don't get when you're teaching at Harvard and Yale and you know Columbia and, and so I, I, I mean it's a different kind of challenge you confront um, that I think has to be out there and that I'm actually on quite good terms with students of that of that category in most cases except for the one I, to whom I said well you don't have to take this course so and he did <laughs> I would say just, there's more fear of. <laughs> of thought and narrowness of thought at Yale than at Bloomington. I do oh, think that's I'm true. Not I'm not yeah. suggesting there isn't. I'm just saying I never encountered that kind of narrowness yeah. anywhere except 
in southern Indiana, and it made me grow up and made me realize that to try to be um, somebody who instructs people morally, sometimes I'm going to have to confront ways of thinking about the world that are just totally alien. And, you know, it, it, then it forces you to ask, is there something in their view that you might need to learn from that you didn't understand was a way of thinking about the world? Today's conversation is from the Aspen Ideas Festival held in the Colorado Rocky Mountains. Scholars, scientists, artists, activists, and others grace our stages for 10 days in June. Our rich archive of conversations can be found at aspenideas.org. Watch or listen to discussions that cover the gamut, from education and happiness to global affairs and domestic politics. Get ready to be educated and entertained. Our videos can be found at aspenideas.org. Here's the rest of our feature discussion. Rob Reich. I want to ask one last question and throw it open to the audience for questions. And um, the topic we've been discussing, how to live a moral life, is already a big one. And I haven't warned you in advance I'm going to ask this, but it's primed by things that have just been said. David, you talked about uh, three philosophical mistakes and um, talking about um, multiple ways to the um, um, occupying the moral truth, not a, not a singular path. So I'm curious, pick a time horizon, let's call it, say, 50 years. Um, um, have we made moral progress? Has there been moral decline in society? Is the very concept of moral progress a mistake to talk about? In the first place, all we have is moral differences. Where are we socially on some moral barometer? So I will confess, I've spent a lot of my life writing about moral progress, so I, you know, I'll just open, be open about that. I think there is moral progress. It's not linear. Um, and I think sometimes we show our capacity for progress most when we show that we come back from the brink of the worst kind of regressive tendencies that human beings have, and I'm, I'll say I'm hoping to high heaven that we can do that now, but I do believe in progress, so I, if you don't, you know, I think it's, it's incumbent upon you to uh, offer your rejoinder. I mean, I don't know if we've made moral progress in the last 50 years or not, um, but uh, one thing that always strikes me is, is as a point of comparison, I, I, when I read about, I was reading in uh, a lot of moral philosophy um, that comes under the rubric demandingness. In other words, not so much um, what should we do, but when can we stop? How much do we have to do? How much are we obliged to do? And um, the underlying assumption on, in many of these theories, not all, but many of them, was um, that most of us are okay. Um, and that any theory under, under whose um, requirements we come out looking mostly bad has to be wrong. Um, and, you know, the percentage is different. You know, everyone had some idea of like, well, maybe 20% 20, 20 of people are really good and 20% of people are really bad and like the, most of us are in the middle. But they always had some notion that the majority of the people would be okay. And this is something that's definitely changed, not in the past 50 years, but I mean, if you uh, compare to medieval times, the assumption then that, that assumption would have seemed completely insane. Um, the assumption then was that almost everybody was a just dreadful sinner, um, very, very, very bad. And any moral system under, under whose standards most of us came out looking reasonable 
would have been immediately rejected. So I do think there's an enormous difference um, from period to period in how we think about what we're expected to do and how much we're obliged to do. And you know, I can't say whether it's better to believe that most humans are dreadful sinners or better to believe that most of us are okay, but it's certainly, um, there's been enormous historical change. Yeah, I, I think it's a slam dunk that we've had a lot of moral progress as a society. Uh, our attitudes toward cruelty are much more humane now. Our attitudes toward fairness, toward people of different genders, different races are not perfect, but they're clearly much better than they were. We're just a fairer, juster, uh, more moral society than it was at any earlier time, I think. There's no era I would want to go back to culturally. At the same time, <laughs> as individuals, when I go back and I read Take, I'll take, I'm just reading this essay by Tolstoy called Confession. And he writes about um, how his early period of life was one of uh, perfection. He wanted to achieve perfection. He wanted to be a perfect writer. He wanted to be a perfect physical specimen, so he worked out. He wanted to be a perfect friend. And he then, he went to Paris and he saw an execution, a decapitation. And he said, I felt with my whole being, not with my mind, but with my whole being, that this act was wrong. And if all the people in all the societies said it was right, I still knew it was wrong. And so he said, there must be some universal truth out there. And he went on to become uh, a Christian and became a, you know, but a believer in there must be some universal truth. And that journey that a lot of us take to try to defeat ego in service of something that we deeply love and regard as transcendent and universal, I'm not sure there we we're, we're any we start from a farther a starting line than everybody else all through time. That we all have to somehow defeat our own ego, our own selfishness, and that we have to do it every day. And I'm not sure that life has become easier. It's become easier to be a virtuous person on an individual level, even if society is way better than it was at any previous time. All right, well, um, let's open it up to questions. There, yeah, please, a round of applause. <laughs> See a hand over here. Hi, uh, Rosalind Wiseman. I work with young people around the nation. Um, the, one of the struggles I'm having right now is that young people they're always focused on the hypocrisy of older people, <laughs> always. But I feel like right now they've got really good reason for it. Um, in my discussions with them about social media, they're very aware of, in large cities and small communities, how, how much their family members are bullying anonymously or not online, and then turning around and telling their kids that they can't do that. And that you put, you know, you do something bad online, it'll follow you forever. So what I'm dealing with is, and so my question to you is, there's very much a value of respecting your elders. But if the elders are abusing power or not upholding the dignity of people, then why should young people respect their elders? And that's what young people are talking to me about. And what they are seeing in a very concrete way is the way in which adults are acting online and how nasty they are. And then they're turning around and telling young people that they cannot do that. Can I answer? I, 
You know, I think it's possible to respect people and yet still acknowledge that they make mistakes. And I don't see why you can't say to a young person, you know, part of being human is that you sometimes are very good and very careful and thoughtful about what, the, you know, being moral demands of you, and yet you still have blind spots and places where you make mistakes. I don't, I don't think that, not, that somehow denying that their parents are human is a good thing. And they will learn that there is no human life in which, no matter how good you try to be, you won't also do something morally wrong. That's the worry I have about self-righteousness. And I mean, it's not that I would want my own child to see my flaws. You know, my daughter's 21 now, so it's not the same kind of thing. But children have to come. I mean, there's a time in their lives when it's appropriate. But if they never learn that human beings are flawed, even the best of people sometimes have feet of clay, they don't know what it is to be human and they're not able to confront in themselves the possibility that they need to face the flaws they have in themselves and try to do better. That's what I would say. Uh, the other thing I would say quickly is I, I hope some people were there. This morning I interviewed this guy named Adam Hamilton, who's a, a Methodist pastor from uh, Kansas City. And we, we were talking about Donald Trump, uh, and we were talking about him in very critical ways, which is what I do for a living <laughs> these days. Uh, and then he said, you know, I, though I'm t I'm, I love Donald Trump, not emotionally, but I'm told to love Donald Trump. And that was a very humbling moment for me, which has haunted me uh, in the day since. And I think it gets a little to this online thing. You, you get in feuds online, you, you, you vent online. But if you remember your elemental love for another human being and how you're called to love every other human being in a certain way, respect, for the equality of their, their selves and souls, I do think it somehow takes the edge off, if we can hold that up as an example, it takes the edge off the imperfections that we all have when we get critical and vicious toward one another or unkind to one another. Yeah, I'll just add one quick thing there too. I mean, for, for anyone, especially who teaches moral philosophy perhaps, as I've done, done for the past 20 years or so, it's a familiar engagement with students when you, you read some moral philosophy, which is a very exacting standard of behavior and commitment, and the students will ask often, well, how does the philosopher live his or her life, and you almost always can show some um, uh, hypocrisy in the way the philosopher lives. And the tendency then amongst the students is then to dismiss, dismiss all the arguments because if the person doesn't live up to his own philosophy, it's not worth taking seriously. And if you let perfection be the, you know, the, the, the only standard we're striving to, you'll miss something. But there are ways to, I mean, as you were saying, some of the worst people you know, moral philosophers. I once encountered a class in which the philosopher was giving an exacting moral standard when the students in the class pointed out to him that his own philosophy was something he was very far from leading. His response was, the sign does not need to be in Berlin to point to Berlin. Ah, wow, wow. <laughs> See if there's another hand. Right over here. Um, we've been talking uh, to some extent about students and education. But as I look around this room, there's not many teens and 20s here. There's people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. And all of us are wondering with this gulf that we see uh, between our society on two different sides, uh, how do we behave among ourselves? What steps could we take? to, from a moral standpoint, decrease that gulf, to engage. Because I believe that most people are okay, as you put it. They're okay. And so if we're all okay, how do I appeal to that and uh, decrease that gulf that we're experiencing? 
Could I take yeah, quick? So I was talking about this earlier actually on a panel on whether democracy has a future. And I think there's a lot to be learned, strangely, not from moral philosophy, but from organizational behavior theory and from conflict resolution. And it turns out, I'll, I'll give an example that I think it has a very powerful moral uh, point. You know, during the 90s, when there was lots of uh, abortion clinic violence carried out by people who, you know, had very strong views, Brookline, Massachusetts, a Planned Parenthood clinic, had an attack in which two people were killed. And the archdiocese in uh, the Boston area and a few other leaders sat down and said, we need to bring the two sides to this debate, dispute, together. And we need to get them to sit down and we need to get them to talk to each other in a way that shows that they don't think that just because someone disagrees with them, they're horned devils. And that's the real problem. And that doesn't happen overnight. I will also say that in the case in which this particular example uh, took place, they talked for five years. And it talked in secret. And it's not like people came in that process of talking to a particular decision. But that wasn't the point. The point was to engage in a kind of a conversation, which I think we all need. And conflict resolution, organizational behavior. There's a thing at MIT called the Dialogue Project. There's a kind of national group called the Public Conversations Project. To my mind, that's actually part of politics. That's the job of citizens. That, I mean, how we deal with our political officials is a different thing, and our legislators and representatives and so forth. But how we deal with each other, some of that is learning how to have respectful conversation. And it's learning how to see the moral integrity of another human being whose specific views on an issue you care about may look very different. We are not there, but there is something. It's not going to come from my discipline. It's going to come from people who deal with conflict resolution. Maybe we need our own Good Friday agreement, like, like Belfast, you know, like Northern Ireland. I think something on that order. But I think we can also do it. I mean, I, th I think you're right that those disciplines have a, of a huge amount of wisdom to offer, but I think we can also do it in an amateur way yeah. by just putting yourself in the other person's sure. position. I mean, you know, one question, I'm, I'm, I live in Brooklyn, it's a liberal bubble, um, and for the last uh, few months, as I'm sure in many of your lives, I've heard constantly, how could people vote for Donald Trump? How could people vote for Donald Trump? And um, one of the questions I've started asking is, well, okay, what would it take for you to vote for a Republican? What would the Democrat have to do for you to change your party affiliation? And um, it, it sort of stops people. And that's such a simple question. It's just putting you, and for instance, I mean, you know, you brought up abortion. I think that's a good example. Uh, if you believe that babies are being slaughtered by the thousands in this country, um, and you think that one person is going to help potentially stop that, and one person isn't, you can understand why that would be your number one issue, and you would you would turn your a blind eye to a lot of other stuff that was going on if you felt like that was an issue that perhaps had the potential to be changed. Um, that's not my view, but I don't think it's so difficult um, to put yourself in the shoes of some other people who hold opposing views. Um, why it doesn't happen more often is a little bit of a mystery to me. I actually think it's much harder than you do. I think it's much harder. I think we need to do it, but I think the getting there for many people, I mean, some of the things that other people I live with as a citizen do and say and argue are deeply difficult to yeah. hear 
and learning how to hear that without reacting in a way that demonizes the other, I think that's a very difficult process. I mean, you know, I was optimistic about the other things. This one, I'm not pessimistic, but I think it's a really challenging thing to do. And I don't fault people who don't do it, but I think we still have a duty to learn how. Yeah. I could just make one final point. That I'm a big believer in Samuel Johnson had this couplet of all the things that human hearts endure, how few are, how few are those that kings can cause and cure. And what he meant by that is that kings, or in our case, presidents or elected officials, they're important. But a moral life is mostly a private life. It's mostly the people right around us. And like you're in a relationship, your tendency when you're in fighting with somebody in a relationship is to think that the real problem here is their selfishness. <laughs> but in reality, you probably should go thinking that the real problem here is my selfishness. It's the only selfishness you can really control. And so going into an argument with the, well, what about my selfishness here? What about my ego here? How can I love this person in a way that brings out their loveliness? How can I be, there are some people, okay, I'll say it, but there are some people I, I see here year to year, I, I don't really like seeing them. <laughs> I find them a little annoying. <laughs> and, but how can I, show them the respect to which they are due. And when I'm annoying, I hope somebody shows me the respect that they do. And, and I had a friend, the best the pr column in 13 years that I'm proudest of was, it was, uh, it was called The Art of Presence. A friend of ours was in a bike accident and was nearly killed. Her, she needed dozens of operations on her face. Uh, and she was just her mom and, and folks stayed with her for six months and they'd already lost a daughter. And how do you be present with that person in that circumstance? Mm -hmm. And so the, the mom, uh, the, their daughter was named Anna who died in Afghanistan. She, she said, gave me like a really useful piece of advice, which was people when they see me, they sometimes think, should I raise Anna or will it just bring up a depressing subject? And they should know that Anna is always on my mind. Mm -hmm and therefore raise her, and if I feel like talking better, I'll talk, if I, I don't, I don't. That is good moral advice. Yeah. And, when we talk, and then they gave a series of lists of how to behave when somebody's in a position of trauma. Like, don't compare. I understand you're, you're sorry about your daughter's injury. My dog died last month, I totally get it. <laughs> don't compare. And then sometimes just be present. Just sit there and be present. And they said like the, one of the best things that happened to them they, their daughter was sick and mom was staying with her for 24 hours a day and somebody just came and they realized there was no shower mat outside the shower. So they biked to Target, they bought a shower mat and they put it there. And they said that was the best thing that happened. Mm. And just learning those act, small acts of consideration, that's actually what a moral life is largely about. And then the politics is of course important. So do you know there's actually a theorist of conflict resolution. Actually, he describes his work as peace studies. His name is Jean-Paul Lederach, teaches at Notre Dame mostly. He's actually said that in some of the worst sort of national crises in places where people have been killing each other for generations, sometimes all it takes is for one person on one side to engage in some small gesture, maybe of respect or kindness or compassion to the other side, and then all of a sudden, things that couldn't be talked about can be talked about. I think it's so important. Even in this case where we're thinking, you know, big political issues, sometimes it is that small gesture. And I, David, I really appreciate your bringing that up. Because it's the big, like as you were saying, some of it is every day. 
even when the context is not every day. Um, so it, that I help I think helps bring our viewpoints together. Well, we've uh, several minutes already past our ending time, and um, any conversation about how to live a moral life uh, is one that will never be finally resolved with a note card for you to take out with you. So I hope this has been the start of a conversation that will begin um, to filter out into the rooms outside and indeed throughout the rest of the, the Aspen Ideas Festival. Thank you very much. Rob Reich co-directs the Center on Philanthropy and Civil Society at Stanford University. Professor Michelle Moody Adams has written articles on equality and social justice, moral psychology, and gender and race. Larissa McFarcar wrote the book, Strangers Drowning, Grappling with Impossible Idealism, Drastic Choices, and the Urge to Help. David Brooks is an op-ed columnist for the New York Times. Their conversation was held in June of 2017 at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Follow Aspen Ideas To Go year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Killeen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Brett Howley, Peter Kaplan, Jamie Miller, and me. Our theme music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.